You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Commentary Trek Stars, a show which looks at the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. Today we are joined again by our very special guest, Ron Wilkerson. How's it going, Ron? It's going just fine. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us uh, yet again. Um, last week we talked about uh, your work on Star Trek. You've written a number of episodes of both Next Generation and Voyager, including Lessons and Learning Curve and, and Lower Decks and, and some, some other really great ones. Thank you. Yeah, and, and uh, you can check that out over on Trek FM. But today we're going to be talking about your new book, Houdini and Lovecraft, The Ghost Writer, which can be found on uh, Amazon. So do you want to just give us like a, a kind of a synopsis of the of the book so that people have an idea what it is? Well, I'll give you a little bit of the, the background of it. Uh, I'm, I've been a, a fan of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft I've, ever since I started reading, I think. Uh, he was one of the, the first writers that really engage my imagination uh, and uh, I read all of his books and I've read them any number of times and there was, there was this one story that was it was not one of his best stories but I found it very very intriguing it was called <clears throat> Imprisoned with the Pharaohs and it was a story that was written in conjunction with Harry Houdini and that was basically there was a little asterisk up by the title Imprisoned with the Pharaohs and at the bottom of the page it was with Harry Houdini and it was a story about Houdini being captured by this Bedouin tribe and thrown into the subterranean uh, tomb uh, under the under the Sphinx and his hor- hor- horrific escape from his uh, from this death uh, uh, plunge that they had thrown him into. And uh, Lovecraft, you know, took the story in his own Lovecraftian way, which I wondered how Houdini related to. And so I I just was really intrigued by the fact that these two guys that were just icons of that era actually worked together. And uh, I started just uh, looking around and seeing if anyone else had ever done anything with it, and no one had. And um, So I, I basically got into uh, researching their lives and uh, read a number of different biographies of each, each of them and as much information as I could, I could put together. And what started to emerge was a very interesting connection between the two guys. Yes, they did work together on, on a story, and Houdini did, in fact, try to help Lovecraft get work. Uh, I think it was unsuccessfully. Um, but they did have a, a, a personal connection in the 1920s. And I thought, gee, w- wouldn't it be interesting to sort of spin that in a what-if scenario and see what if these guys actually had another adventure? And the adventure that I'm talking about is, uh, is an adventure in essentially the, the, the realm of the paranormal, where Houdini is is well-known in reality, or was well-known in reality, is kind of a psychic debunker. He was a professional skeptic, and he he was intrigued by the uh, idea of spiritualism, but intrigued in a way that he wanted to really prove that if it was real, but in the process also expose a lot of the frauds and, and the fakes that were making money off of, this, off of this phenomenon. And at the same time, Lovecraft, right in that same era, was basically struggling for a living. And uh, I, I came up with the concept of what if someone approaches Houdini, a, a rich guy who has a mansion in western Massachusetts, which is kind of Lovecraftian topography. And uh, what if this guy comes to Houdini and says, I have a mansion, I want to sell it, I don't like it, it's been in my family, and uh, I could make more money, but the problem is that it's rumored to be haunted. So I want you to go in and prove that it's not, the, the, the haunting is just sort of a, you know, a, a, an old wives' tale about the place. 
And so Houdini assembles a psychic team in my story and decides to chronicle his adventures by bringing along H.P. Lovecraft as his quote-unquote ghostwriter to write the story of uh, his adventures in the paranormal. So that's the takeoff point of the story. I think I've seen you describe it before as sort of an X-Files type of dynamic, you know, where you've got, I guess, Houdini as the uh, as the scully and, and Lovecraft as the molder, you know, the skeptic and, and the believer. Um, and, and it seems to work really well. Well, it did, it, you know, it developed as I was researching these guys that I got into more and more of uh, of their personalities, I realized that I could create a dynamic. You know, it's a fictional dynamic, of course, but I, I realized that, that I wouldn't be stretching the truth too far to put these guys in a situation where they would come into a natural conflict like that. I mean, uh, Houdini was a professional skeptic. I mean, he, he knew that there was no actual magic in magic. He, you know, he knew, because he was such a, an expert practitioner of it, that magic is basically uh, a, a very... Uh, advanced form of you know manipulation uh, and uh, manipulating physical uh, and uh, and emotional uh, situations to convey an effect. Lovecraft, on the other hand, was a man of imagination. I mean, his flights of fancy into into other worlds is is legendary. And so I thought this is, this could be very interesting <clears throat> if they get into this house and and what emerges is a conflict between the two, and one comes to see the story one way, and the other comes to see the story the other way. Well, I mean, I, I I always appreciate the 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 skeptic that is skeptical because he actually wants it to be true. Yeah, that's definitely Houdini. Yeah, and and like very often, you know, like there's sort of this polarizing thing where people tend to go like, you know, be more open-minded, and other people go, don't be so gullible. And I like professional skeptics like Houdini, and you know, in you know, present day like James Randi. I mean, there are people who who debunk these things because they so badly want it to be real. And when there's a fraud, that is infuriating because it's not the real thing. Yeah, I think every time Houdini uh, exposed a fraud, I think he was, to some degree, disappointed that it, it couldn't be real. You know, it's like, you know, you want, you want Santa Claus to be real <laughs> uh, when you're a kid. And, uh, and I think there's some of that in, in all of us that continues. We want, we want to believe in some of these things. And, uh, and Houdini was looking for proof. Yeah, and like in the, the I mean, the book does deal with. It. I mean, Houdini does seem to be extremely skeptical, but it's the forward-facing aspect of his personality. Like deep down, he's like, "Come on, be be ghosts." Yep, agreed. The other thing that I thought was really interesting that uh, that developed in my research about these two guys is the is their very very different socio and uh, socio and economic backgrounds. Houdini came from abject poverty. He was an immigrant from Eastern Europe. Only spoke Hungarian when he arrived in America at you know very early age, age two, three, something like that, and always spoke with something of an accent. And English was not his first language, to say the least. And absolute dirt poor, and rose up by uh, starting out in traveling circuses and tumbling and doing juggling and doing other kinds of magic shows. Eventually, built up his career to literally probably the, the most highly paid entertainer of his era. I mean, he was, he was the biggest in the 1920s, and not just in America, but all over the world. And he constantly toured, constantly traveled, constantly put on shows, and became extremely wealthy. Whereas Lovecraft, just the opposite. Lovecraft started out uh, in a fairly well-off family in Providence, Rhode Island. His father was a successful salesman. His grandfather was also very successful. And they lived in this beautiful, uh, beautiful home, uh, in in the suburb of Providence, and 
what happened is that his family lost their wealth. His father died, uh, some, some rumors of syphilis, uh, and was essentially committed to a, an insane asylum where he died uh, when Lovecraft was, I guess, in his early teens. And then his grandfather subsequently passed when he was uh, in his late teens, and then his mother died. And basically what happened was this guy who had grown up this Yankee blue blood in, in wealth basically was plunged into abject poverty. And when he started, <clears throat> he started his career, he wasn't very, a very successful writer. Even through most of his career, he wasn't really very successful at selling his writing. And so the way I, I position them is that you know, Lovecraft is desperately in need of money at the beginning of the story. He, he, had, he had married a year or so before. His wife, Sonia, had developed a, a case of tuberculosis. She was in the hospital. He couldn't afford to pay the hospital bills. So when Houdini prevails upon him to, to become his ghostwriter, uh, you know, it, it runs counter to everything Lovecraft really wants to do because he's not close to Houdini. Uh, and, and because they're so different, but due to circumstances, uh, circumstances, he has no choice but to go along with it. Now, this is—I I know that it, well. What this podcast is, of course, is geared towards Star Trek fans, but trying to, you know, I guess, uh, open them up to new, uh, new work and, and stuff like that. I, I've seen, you know, on Twitter, mm. you know, your your interaction with some of the fans and how it's been. I don't know. It seems like kind of a, a struggle to get the Star Trek and the Stargate fans to become interested in this book since it is, you know, kind of a, a different genre and, and, and stuff like that. It's it's more of a, a, a classic horror, kind of a haunted house story. But there is um, definitely sci-fi elements in it as well. I mean, I, I think that, that Star Trek fans or, and Stargate fans would actually like it quite a bit. I, I just want to say, uh, I, I think that, the, that Lovecraft's point of view is actually very informative because he he wrote like basic classic horror stories but he wrote them essentially as science fiction because he thought about like the things that are you know tropes in horror you know like the un- the otherworldly evil lurking you know outside of view as right. like actual scientific concepts, I mean, like he thought, like like parallel dimensions, you know, like different planets, yep. like uh, the galaxy is a huge place, the universe is way bigger. There's going to be some crazy weird stuff out there, and just something being crazy weird is going to be horrifying. Yep. Well, uh, first of all, I want to deal with, with with Mike's observation that uh, it's difficult to get through uh, to fans about the book, and it's true. I'm, I'm working on it, and I'm hoping fans will come to. Uh, Except me as a novelist, in addition to uh, as a as a television and screenwriter, uh, you know, I, I'm a, this is my first novel. Uh, I've obviously done a lot of writing. This was based on a screenplay that I had written, by the way, uh, that made the rounds of Hollywood and almost got picked up a number of different places. And I don't want to go into any of those gory horror, horror stories because it it really doesn't help what we're doing here. But uh, I I lived it, and I've always loved the story, and thought, well, this is this is something that could be novelized very nicely, and so. With the development of direct publishing and being able to get a book up on Amazon directly without having to go through a publisher, this to me is is sort of the, a new era for writers uh, to expose themselves to uh, uh, a new market without having that filter. And I thought, wonderful, I want to go there and I want to see what I can do with it. And so that that was really part of the inspiration, too, of, of taking the story there. And I'm hoping, as I said, I'm hoping fans will uh, will give the book a shot and, uh, and realize that... Uh, you know there is life beyond Star Trek and Stargate and uh, you know, other things. Now, as to the as to uh, Max's observation about sci-fi horror and Lovecraft, 
that was very much at the at the centerpiece of my of my novel. Is uh, I was very intrigued uh, by Lovecraft's ability to merge the two genres. And and what's kind of funny is in today's world, you often see like fans of horror or fans of sci-fi and uh, you know, like as if the church and state, and you know, to my feeling, you know, they aren't. I'm, I'm fans of both genres, and and I thought Lovecraft was as well. And there are stories of his that I think early in his writing he started out in pure horror, but as he grew and as he matured as a writer, there were other stories that merged the two elements of horror mm-hmm. and sci-fi. And and I look at this story, and there there are a couple of Lovecraft stories that I think were particularly inspirational to me, and. First of all was the Dreams in the Witch House, which is one of my favorite Lovecraft stories, and very definitely mixed horror and sci-fi, and mm-hmm. the idea of of these sort of ghostly or, or witch-type characters that actually trans, uh, uh, transported themselves interdimensionally to other realms. And, uh, uh, and so that was a, a, an element of Lovecraft that I borrowed very much for my story. The other one is a, a, a story called The Shadow Out of Time, which is a story of Lovecraft's in which uh, a college professor essentially exchanges minds with another another alien race across the uh, the cosmos. I think they're called the Yithians or something like that. And uh, that is a very lives, Star Trek type story. I yeah, he lives a year or two <laughs> or three or whatever it is in the body of a Yithian, <laughs> and the Yithian yeah. lives in his body. And uh, it's it, it, those two stories I think were seminal in uh, in helping me. Uh, come up with a story between Houdini and Lovecraft, and where my story, uh, the Ghost Rider, might go, because it does start out in a uh, in what appears to be a conventional horror mode, and uh, that mode is influenced by another work, uh, the the movie The Shining, uh, not the remake, but the original movie Robert Wise, and uh, that uh, the movie that was from I think the 1960s uh, is written by uh, Shirley Jackson. Terrific, terrific horror film, and that's where we begin is with uh, that kind of going to the mansion, the, the haunting kind of thing. But it takes a sci-fi turn uh, midway through the story, and I think is uh, is very Lovecraftian and would be satisfying to fans of both genres. Yeah, you know, I mean, like you talked about, you know, how some people see it as sort of like you know church and state, and you know, I, I I'm a fan of both genres as well, but I'm definitely much more of a sci-fi fan, and and when. Um, I, I see a horror movie or, or read a horror book or, or whatever, and it takes on, you know, sci-fi elements. I, I get a lot more excited about it, you know, and, and um, this this definitely does that. So, I mean, if you are a sci-fi fan, check, check this out for sure. In general, in general, I think, <clears throat> I think science fiction fans would find a lot of really cool stuff in Lovecraft. Well, yeah. And I think that if you're a Lovecraft fan, you'd find this, this, this book really cool. And, I mean, if you like just, you know paranormal stuff in general i mean horror movies you know science fiction movies things that are super normal yeah so i I know that this book was obviously influenced by by the work of lovecraft um but as someone who was not familiar with with lovecraft's work you know i I was seeing um similarities to uh well actually another one of of your pieces which is uh schisms from next generation Okay. Um, there seem to be a, a lot of similarities to that, both in terms of tone and and also um, a few elements. And I'm I'm guessing probably that that schisms was influenced by Lovecraft as well, and not necessarily this by by schisms. But there seems to be like some ideas which are you know floating around, which you you've returned to. I, I was just wondering if that was just me reading too much into it, or 
or what? No, I, I, I think you're uh, I think you're hitting the the essence of what the story is about. Is uh, in both cases, in in the case of my story Houdini and Lovecraft, the Ghost Rider, and in the case of Schisms, we have we have human beings, well, for the most part, human beings on the Enterprise, uh, that are being manipulated by an outside force, and uh, it, that was the the key element in Schisms that was fun was that. You know, we have this big and powerful ship with all of its sensors and all of its uh, uh, means of detecting any outside influence, and yet people are somehow being abducted from it and, you know, messed with and then put back on the ship. And, uh, you know, the only thing they have to account for uh, what has happened to them is, is their confusion over the issue. And so I thought that was what was really fun about that episode, Schisms, is, again, the, the great and powerful Starship Enterprise crew being manipulated by an even more powerful alien uh, alien presence. And I, I play with that here, too, as well, that we have Houdini and, you know, other other members of his team. They're very, uh, I wouldn't say, well, Houdini is certainly very full of himself because he's as successful as he is, uh, and, uh, and really uh, is astounded uh, when they find that they're actually being manipulated by outside forces. Uh, and so we have a similar kind of realization and a similar kind of jeopardy. So yeah, I think your observation is correct. Another question, which I know that Max had, was uh, where does your uh, your your love of Lovecraft come from? Like, what what are your your Lovecraftian origins, in a sense? Your love of Lovecraft's craft. <laughs> well, uh, again, I, I I discovered him pretty early when I was a teenager. I think is when I first discovered Lovecraft, and uh, just scared the scared the heck out of me. <laughs> uh, and his stories, you know, hold up to. Repeated readings and rereadings, and uh, you know some of my favorites are you know, the Shadow Over Inn's Mouth, the Mountains of Madness. Uh, a, a very short one that I just love for its twist is a story called The Outsider, and uh, and and the two that I already mentioned, A Shadow Out of Time, and I think Dreams in the Witch House is one of my favorites uh, of all of his stories. And again, um, you know, I go back to Lovecraft. I've reread and I've read and reread his stories any number of times, and find different things. That I've discovered in his writing uh, each time, you know, that I'm at a different stage of my own maturity and my own uh, evolution, and I've al- I also tried, uh, you know, uh, Mike, you may not notice this, but Max may have noticed it a bit more. I tried to write to some degree in a Lovecraftian style. I tried to use some of his language. I tried to, uh, and in actual cases or actual quotes, uh, you know, the Lovecraft quote about Houdini and his, you know, the ignorant little foreigner actually is a quote. <laughs> <laughs> the, from reality, as I as I recall, but I tried to I tried to use his uh, verbiage and I tried to set the story in some ways uh, to do homage to his writing because I am I do respect him so much. So okay, so obviously you're but avoid the overly flowery like extended descriptions of a doorknob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know I've, that that may expose my limitations as a TV writer. In TV in TV we write you know. Our, our 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 narrative is so terse, you know. No, I think I think it's a genuinely positive thing. Like I <laughs> oh, love Lovecraft stuff, but like I have spent, like there there have been points where like I read a sentence and I'm like, that is completely pointless, <laughs> very elegantly <laughs> written, but doesn't help anything. Yeah, yeah. The, the Lovecraft that I like the least are the the ones where he emulated uh, Dunsany and was getting more into just sort of flowery. Uh, uh, eloquence but uh, of mystical realms but not necessarily any story uh, so the the ones that are more meaty and more um, 
visceral are the ones that I always seem to uh, respond to. Okay, so you, you grew up with Lovecraft, and, and that's obviously where um, you know your connection to him came from. Were you a fan of Houdini, or were you just intrigued by the idea that the two of them had worked together? Again, another one of my longtime loves is uh, Harry Houdini. Uh, you know, <laughs> when I was a kid, I saw, I think on television, the, the movie with uh, uh, Tony Curtis as Houdini and intrigued me right then, you know, when he was plunged into the Detroit River and, you know, couldn't, couldn't find air under the ice. And uh, I mean, it was just, there's so much about Houdini, which is fascinating. And so uh, I've read his books. I've read the books that, that he wrote, as well as I've read a number of biographies of him. And I, again, I just find him a really fascinating character. And I, I don't think he's ever been done all that well on the screen. I mean, in retrospect, the the Tony Curtis movie is a little bit cheesy. Uh, he's an, also a, a fascinating guy in that he was multimedia. I mean, he was obviously most known for his stage performances and his staged performances in the real world, uh, escaping from straitjackets and escaping from trunks thrown into the river and things like that. But he was also a filmmaker. Uh, he was also a writer. And, uh, and he uh, basically uh, <laughs> exposed himself across a variety of media that was available to him in the 1920s. So he was a very progressive guy in his uh, in his approach to finding an audience. For, for the most part, you know, the the book is is pretty much told from Love's, Lovecraft's perspective. I, I was wondering if that was uh, just like sort of a necessity of the story, or if that was a, a, a conscious decision on your part, or or, or or what the reasoning behind that was. Well, um, I, w- I wanted to do. Uh, you know, a, an open story as opposed to a closed story. I mean, I like mysteries up to a point, but I think at a certain point you have to reveal, you know, what's going on so that people understand the jeopardy. You know, Hitchcock talked about it as, as supri- uh, suspense rather than surprise. You know, if you don't give things away ever, it's just surprise, you know, when all of a sudden something comes at them. Uh, but if you build it up and you cue the audience in on it little by little, that's that's where suspense comes from. And that's what Lovecraft is about. And so it made more sense for me to follow Lovecraft's track through the story uh, principally as opposed to following Houdini because Lovecraft gradually grows to understand the true nature of the of the horror uh, that's going on in this mansion. And it is, it is a, a very real horror uh, to these people. Whereas Houdini... It's more of a surprise to him eventually when it when it, he comes to that realization. So I thought following Lovecraft's track made a little bit more sense because it allowed the audience to peer into his mind and allowed the audience to peer into what he was seeing and what he was experiencing. So that was a deliberate uh, storytelling choice. Switching gears a little bit, uh, you, you talked about how uh, you adapted this from, from a screenplay that you had written. Um, and this is your first book. What were some of the challenges... Um, First, in, in adapting from a, a screenplay to a you know a prose format, but then also you know writing a novel versus you know writing screenplays. Uh, good question. Um, first of all, you know writing is writing to begin with. I think you know the hardest part of writing is getting it out of your head and onto the page or onto the computer screen or whatever. That's <laughs> that's the that's the the biggest challenge we all face. Uh, after that, everything is really a matter of form, and I think. Uh, the biggest thing, first of all, in writing a screenplay versus a novel is in a screenplay, you're writing everything in present tense, whereas in a novel, you're looking at it uh, in, in uh, third-person omniscient past tense. And uh, and so that was probably the biggest switch, is, is switching everything. Because I used a great deal of the dialogue for my screenplay, and I used some of the narrative for my screenplay in this, in this novel. Um, but uh, all of it had to be switched to 
not the, not the not dialogue so much, but all of the narrative had to be switched to that past tense view. And that is, the, you know, that was hard, one of the hardest things about it, to be honest with you. Being, you know, writing screenplays and teleplays as long as I have uh, is making that switch. But I, I found it really uh, enjoyable once I was able to get into that mode. And, and then the second thing is, as I, as I briefly mentioned earlier, in screenwriting, uh, your narrative is very terse. And it's very, um, uh, we write a lot in fragments. We write a lot just in single word descriptions of moments or, uh, or, or feelings. And in a novel, you have to give a lot more. You have to write a lot more in depth. Uh, and I think it was funny. I was, I was, I was reminded all the, all the while I was writing this, I was reminded of a conversation I had with Cherry Taylor, who was a showrunner at Star Trek, Next Generation and Voyager. And uh, it was when she was first writing her first um, Voyager novel, uh, I was asking her what that was like. And, uh, and she said, <laughs> you know, it's the hardest part about it is you write all day. And where you normally cover about five pages, you look at the page you've written in the novel form, and it's half a page. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just screenwriters are just used to being quick uh, and terse in their descriptions and get right into the heart of the scene, whereas in a novel, you've really got to explore and you've got to uh, tell the story more in, in detail. So, so any, any final thoughts on the book, then? The thing I'd like to say about the book is, first of all, I hope people give it a shot. Uh, it's, uh, it's on Amazon, both in paperback and in uh, Kindle and uh, computer download. You know, if you uh, all I can say is, if you like my writing on Stargate or you like my writing on Star Trek, uh, I think you'll like the book. It's a, it's a fun book. It has elements of horror and elements of sci-fi. Uh, I love the characters, and I think that uh, although if you don't know anything about Houdini and Lovecraft, you'll learn a lot about them, and perhaps uh, might encourage you to even learn more about them. Uh, um, I I had a great deal of fun writing it. I've had really good uh, response from the people that have given it a chance. So I just hope more people try it. I actually think it's a really good primer on Lovecraft's material. Like, I've told people, like, oh, if you want to get into Lovecraft, you should read, oh, um, there's no way to start. <laughs> there's no place to start. Like, you can literally yeah. choose any access point, and it's going to be equally awkward. So, like, a good entry point for, for Lovecraft, like, this, I think this works as that, and I think that's a really good thing, because there isn't one with, you know, in his, in his history. Agreed. He's a difficult writer to get into, but... Um... Uh, I, I, I appreciate the compliment. I think uh, I think it is a good introduction to the character and an introduction to the Lovecraftian universe. So thanks. Yeah, and as someone who had basically no knowledge of Lovecraft or or Houdini, I, I found the book to be you know very entertaining, and it did make me want to go out and read Lovecraft's other stuff. So I appreciate that. And and in terms of you know like what you're saying about you know Star Trek or Stargate fans giving you a chance, I mean that's what our show is all about is, you yeah. know, like there, I mean, Star Trek fans. That's what we really, started this to do. <laughs> yeah. They, 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 they really love Star Trek, you know? And like, to me, or to us, I mean, I guess just from our backgrounds or whatever, you know, we see like, Oh, well, you know, this guy wrote Star Trek. That was awesome. What else did he do? Kind of thing. And, you know, it, it, this is a very good book. I mean, people have seen your episodes. They know that you're a really good writer. I don't, I do not understand why they wouldn't give this a shot. And, because, and, because there's no techno babble about warp <laughs> coils or something. <laughs> yeah, but, I, don't, I don't deal at all with warp drive. Huh? It's, a, it's, a, it's a limitation of the book. <laughs> okay, well, in, in the sequel, you can deal with warp drive um, and a transporter malfunction and uh, phase inducers can go offline or something. I, I am actually thinking about a sequel to it. But in the meantime, I am adapting another one of my, um, one of my uh, screenplays into a novel. So we'll see how that one goes first. Is is that anything you want to talk about or not? 
Uh, very briefly, it's uh, it's a story called Crossover, and it's uh, it's set in the 1980s, and it's about a um, a reporter, a newspaper reporter, who does risky things for a living and writes about them. And uh, I based him on a, a writer at the time, uh, I think his name was Doug Vetter, uh, that, that wrote for Playboy and basically did real risky uh, things and then wrote about how, it's, how terrifying they were. <laughs> and my, my lead character is um, on a police ride-along, and the town is uh, it's kind of like during the term of the Night Stalker. Uh, the town is kind of in the grips of a serial killer, and my story is called The Sawtooth Slayer. And uh, my guy, my reporter, Barry Corrigan, is in the <clears throat> back of, of a police car, and the cops see something, they take off, leave him stuck in the backseat. If you're in the backseat of a police car, there are no door handles, <laughs> so you, you don't get out. And, of course, at the very worst moment, the sawtooth player comes out of the darkness and uh, finds him in the backseat and kills him, basically. My hero dies on page nine. Uh, crosses over into the afterlife, meets the woman of his dreams, and then is revived on the operating table. <laughs> And uh, he becomes obsessed with uh, finding the, the fact that the woman he loves is uh, on the other side. That's my story. And uh, again, I wrote that as a screenplay and again, got close to production, but uh, I'm uh, uh, now working on adapting that into, uh, into a novel form. But then in addition, I have the TV thing, which I think we're going to talk about too. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know that this was a project which was announced. I, I read something that I think was on Deadline or, or something like that. It, it's, it's called Dreamland? Yeah, we have a... Um, uh, a story called Dreamland that is a, a pilot at this point, and uh, we see it as a TV series. And uh, it's we we wrote the pilot for Lifetime Network. We're now just waiting for their decision on whether to produce the pilot and or go to series on it. It's set in Hollywood. It's a, it's a different story. It's not science fiction or horror, but it uh, is set in Hollywood during the Depression. It begins in 1930, and it centers around a character named Billy Wilkerson, who is a, a very distant relative of mine. And he was the guy who, in 1930, started the Hollywood Reporter, which was the first daily trade paper in Hollywood, and uh, essentially took on the studio moguls and was the guy that was uh, 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 telling the truth about what was going on in Hollywood. And uh, as, as a result of that, uh, grew into conflict with a great deal of, uh, uh, of the moguls. And uh, it's, it's basically telling the stories, the true stories uh, and of things. Again, it's historical fiction, so we're, we're basing it on reality, but again, you know, we're setting our own, our own pace. And uh, telling the stories of Hollywood that people just don't know about. And what's really fascinating about this guy is that he wrote a column every day uh, for about, my God, what was it, about 30 years, 35 years, something like that. Uh, and so we really get to see into his mind uh, because we, his, he wrote on a daily basis and his, uh, his newspaper wrote on a daily basis. So we're, um, in our pilot, we're, uh, we're juxtaposing a couple of stories. We're juxtaposing the, the story of uh, Clark Gable, who was an unknown actor at the time, literally uh, couldn't get work and uh, was struggling to, to make a name for himself. And uh, on a bet with uh, Louis B. Mayer, uh, Billy Wilkerson wrote about Gable, saying that he could he could make an unknown into a big star, and uh, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. He wrote this column on Gable, and the exhibitors picked it up. And next thing you knew, Clark Gable was starring in Red Dust with Gene Harlow. Uh, so that that, and then we're contrasting that with another story of another person trying to make it in Hollywood, Tag Entwistle, who uh, was an actress who came from England to Broadway, was successful on Broadway, came to Hollywood, and ultimately didn't succeed and uh, committed suicide by jumping off the Hollywood sign. 
So we're telling stories like that that people just haven't haven't heard before. So those are some of the stories we're telling in our pilot, but there are hundreds of them. And uh, one of my co-writers on the project is uh, uh, co-developers of the series is Rob Cooper, who was uh, uh, showrunner on Stargate SG-1 and Stargate Voyager, or Stargate plus not Voyager, plus the other one, uh, Atlantis. I'm sorry, my mind is slipping there. And the other co-writer is uh, Willie Wilkerson, who is the son of Billy Wilkerson, and uh, basically has all of these uh, amazing stories about old Hollywood. So that is the project. We've written the pilot, and we're it's at the network. We're just hoping for a positive positive response from them anytime. So where can, where can people find you? Well, I do hope they go to my website, ronwilkerson.com, and uh, I have a number of essays. I'm constantly adding to it uh, you know, as, as, as much as I can. I have essays. I have tributes to people that, uh, that have meant a lot to me. I have some of my music. A lot of people don't know I'm a musician and have played music for many years, and so that can be found there too. And then just you know, news things that come up. Uh, I, I, I have I have opinions that I like to share. I just wrote an essay on why I thought uh, uh, why I thought Argo was the film that beat out uh, Lincoln and Zero Dark Thirty at the Oscars. My theory is uh, actually based on the writing, based on a conscious choice made by the filmmaker. So I hope people go to RonWilkerson.com and read my writing and. Uh, and it's a way to stay in touch with me. And also, you know, I'm on Twitter all the time. I don't do Facebook as much, but I'm on Twitter pretty much every day. And so that's another good way to reach me. And that's at Ron underscore Wilkerson? Yeah, at Ron underscore Wilkerson. And, and the book is called Houdini and Lovecraft, The Ghost Writer. And you can find that on Amazon. So be sure to check it out. It's, it's really good. Great. Thank you. As always, you can find us at our other show, CommentaryTrackStars.com or on Trek.fm. And uh, you can find us on Twitter at ComTrackStars or email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. So thanks again for joining us, Ron. And uh, everybody, be sure to go out and, and read the book. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure.